right, everyone. Well, let's begin. Welcome to the November School of St. Philip Neri on the topic of preparation for a happy death. All right, let's uh, stand. Uh, and uh, Oh, quick note. Uh, we will be recorded. So uh, be, bear that in mind when you contribute to the discussion. It will be online in perpetuity forever. Uh, so let's make it a good discussion then. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'll sing the hymn, Lord of all hope from us. Lord of all hope, Lord of all joy, whose trust ever childlike no cares can destroy, be there awaking and give us St. Philip Neri, Apostle of Rome. As the time drew near when the saint was to depart from this life, he said Mass every morning with such wonderful joy and fervor that it was evident he knew his time was short. The Feast of Corpus Christi, the 25th of May, having at length arrived, it was a festival for which he had a particular devotion, Philip gave orders very early to admit all who wanted to come to him to confession. He began very early in the morning hearing the confessions of his spiritual children just as if he was in perfect health. He begged many of them to say a rosary for him after his death, assigning it to some as their penance. To others he gave many spiritual instructions, particularly enjoining on them that the frequentation of the sacraments, 
the attending sermons and readings of the lives of the saints. He also embraced them with great affection and caressed them in an unusual manner. Cardinal Agostino Quazano and Cardinal Federico Barameo now came to see him on their return from the procession of the Most Holy Sacrament, and they remained talking of divine things with him till dinner time. At five o'clock, Cardinal Quasano came a second time, and with him, Girolamo Panfilio, Panfilio, at that time the auditor of the Rota, and soon after came Pinello Benici, Bishop of Monte Pulciano, of whom Philip said matins of the following day, though the rest of that day's office, he was to finish with the angels and saints in paradise. At the third hour of the night, he performed his usual spiritual exercises, and then got into bed in perfect health without showing the slightest sign of sickness or infirmity. When it had struck five of the night and midnight was just past, the 26th of the month began. He arose and began to walk up and down his room, on which Father Antonio Galonio, who slept in the room below, ran up and found him lying again in his bed with such a violent cough and such an effusion of blood that he had great reason to fear that it would choke him. Father Antonio asked him how he felt, and he replied, Antonio, I am going. Father Antonio now ran to call for assistance and set off for the medical man. Then returning with several others to the room of the saint, he found him sitting on the bed, in which posture he remained till his death. Meantime, all the fathers were called up to his room, and it seemed as if he was only waiting for them to arrive before he died. They all knelt in front of his bed, weeping while Caesar Baronio, who was then superior, made the com commendation of his soul, and being told by the medical man who stood up by the, that fa the father was going, he said to him with a loud voice, Father, are you going to leave us without saying a word to us? Give us at least your blessing. At these words, Philip lifted his hand slightly, and opening his eyes, which till then had remained closed, he raised them towards heaven, and kept them fixed there for some time, and then lowering them towards the fathers who were kneeling around him, he made a gentle inclination of the head towards them, as if he had obtained for them the blessing of God, and thus, without another movement, as, but as if gently falling asleep, he expired. Thank you, Reed. Uh, before we got, I'm going to get started with the reading from the School of St. Philip. It's actually a book. It's not just the name of the group. It's a, a book that was written at some point by some Italian and some oratorian, uh, English oratorian, Father Faber, translated into English. And we're going to take a selection of that on the chapter called Of Preparation for Death. Uh, but before we do that, I want to kind of introduce the topic a little bit. It's a little bit ominous. It's a little bit uh, dismal, death. Um, and maybe deserves some explanation of why we're talking about it right now. Um, my first thought, uh, I, got to, I got to pick the topic, which is kind of fun. And I figured, it's November, okay? You got the Holy Souls, you got visits to cemeteries, um, and you got the church talking about the eschaton a lot, like the Sunday's uh, gospel, all about like moons changing colors and very ambiguous things <laughs> happening at the end of time. Cool stuff. The church gets very eschatological during this time of November, right before the beginning of Advent. Uh, and so as if the whole mind of the church is angled towards looking towards the last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell. These things are supposed to be on our mind right now as we end the liturgical year and prepare for the coming of Christ through Advent and then Christmas and the new liturgical year. Uh, and there's something fitting about that. The new year comes to life, the new year and then the old year comes to an end. So that's why we're talking about death tonight. And I was going to have it just called Preparation for Death. And uh, the thought was that sounds a little bit too dark. 
So uh, I was uh, persuaded to call it something else. I said, well, let's call it, let's make it happy. Let's call it preparation for a happy death. Uh, and I guess it makes sense because uh, if you, people hear prepare for death and you hear like, hello, my name is Nigo Montoya. You killed my father. <laughs> prepare to die. <laughs> so that's, um, yeah, for a happy death. That's something that's part of the Catholic tradition. So that's the idea of the topic. Um, now, death is something we don't think about a lot. Our culture doesn't think about a lot. It comes up, especially when tragedies happen, like uh, last night in Paris, and it cuts right up to the forefront of our minds. And it's something we want to avoid. It's something we want to put off the side. We don't want to think about it. It calls to, minds, uh, to our own minds uh, details of tragedies that might have happened to us, people in our lives, uh, things we'd rather forget about. Um, but paradoxically, death is foundational for the Christian life. So the Christian life, being Christian, begins at baptism. And it's so easy to forget that baptism is all about death. You're, being, you're dying to the world. You're entering into death. You're entering into Christ's death. You're being immersed in the waters of death, the waters of chaos, and you're dying in order to receive the life of Christ, the life of grace. It's the beginning of being Christians, the beginning of the life of grace, you know, and it's calling us to something higher. And the thing about baptism, every part of our Christian life, every, it's, it's all an unfolding of that original grace that's given to us at baptism. And that grace, it comes to us through death, through Christ's death, uniting ourselves to the death of Christ on the cross. You know, someone said recently to me that, not even just this life, but even all of heaven will be contemplating what's happening to us in baptism. It's, it's, that, it's that important. And the whole Christian life is a, is a deepening of that, of that initial grace. And you can see that too in the way we go about discerning vocations and entering into where God's calling us. Um, cool thing, uh, I like to bring this up because I just think it's awesome. Uh, I don't think it's the case anymore. But in Egypt, uh, Coptic monks... When they went to make their profession, when they did their vows or the equivalent of vows in the Coptic church, uh, they would uh, they'd lie on the ground. Very similar to, you know, we'd be lying on the ground for like priestly ordination and stuff. But they, they have this thick woolen burial shroud placed over them to symbolize the death to the world. And they'd be there for like hours as they're chanting the Psalms, doing all these different prayers, in the heat of the desert with no air conditioning. And sometimes some monks would not come out from underneath that, die of heat exhaustion underneath the burial shroud. That's a poignant symbol. That's really hitting the point home. <laughs> I don't think they die anymore. I don't think they do that as long as they used to. I don't actually know, but that really hits home. Uh, but that's too. That's uh, any vocation. Priestly, I mean, you go down, you prostrate, and then you receive the sacrament. It's it's part of that. It's it's death to self. It's a deepening of that baptismal grace where God is calling you to be. Marriage is a death. Everyone who's married knows that you have to die to self in order to be married. Uh, there's something about that, and it's a deepening of that grace. It is a sacrament. It too is joined to the cross. So it's it's all it's all about being. It's all through us in, in our Christian life. Every sacrament is related to death in some way because every sacrament flows from the cross. Every sacrament flows from Christ's crucifixion. I had a seminary professor just on Thursday. Um, we were talking about John on the cross, and uh, it was John on the cross made some good and like comparisons between the crucifixion and the sacraments, and and the professor asked. Who was the first one to make that, compar that comparison? And some foolish first-year seminarian said, uh, Fulton Sheen? <laughs> and uh, the professor says, maybe a little bit before him. And I'm like, oh, I, I got this. I'm like, Jesus? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, actually, I was thinking of Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> like, no, all the sacraments flow from the crucifixion. All the sacraments flow from the death of Christ. 
Uh, it's not just something that Thomas Aquinas invented. It actually happened with Christ, and that's what he desired. That's part of his whole plan. And it all goes back to his death. And we're surrounded by it all the time. We all have crucifixes. We're Catholic. We're crucifixes. We're reminded of his death. We wear them, you know? We, uh, we, have, we talk about water. We, bapt- we bless ourselves with water. It's a reminder of our baptism. It's a reminder that we are dead to the world, and we are alive in Christ. It's, it's everywhere. It, it penetrates every bit of our Christian life. It permeates everything. Uh, and everything about the Christian life is, or, is ordered towards that life that we're going to have fully in heaven. Um, okay, so that's, that's all by way of preparation for tonight's topic, which is preparation for death, for a happy death. Um, that's, that's all well good. I think that's good on like a sort of theoretical level, maybe, and you can like, in, a, in one's prayer life, you can think about the grace of baptism. You know, it's not just about... You know, you go to a baptism, and it's like, uh, oh, how was the baptism? Oh, it was great. Uh, the baby didn't cry. What? That's nice. Or, oh, it was great. The baby smiled. Oh, that's wonderful. But, like, so much is happening than just the reaction of the baby at the bap- baptism. You know, there's the whole life being given to this child. It's got a child to be transformed from inside. He's being directed towards eternal life in heaven. There's a lot going on there. And what does it mean, then, to prepare, then, for physical death, the separation of our soul from the body? Uh... It's kind of a one-time event. Um, so how do we get ready for that? We don't, you can't, can we practice it? Is that, is that part of our life? What's going on there? And maybe these questions we can think about, too. And then, and then also, you know, in particular, how do you actually go about preparing for one's death? You know, all of us will come to that hour, hour of our own death at some point. And each of us is going to be different. It's going to be different ways. Hopefully it doesn't come all of a sudden. We, uh, but it's... Uh, what do we do in that moment? What, what, who talks about this? You want advice at this pivotal moment of your life, which is the hour of your death. Who talks about it? Well, we're going to talk about it. And we're going to use this, uh, this text from the School of St. Philip Neri to talk about especially how St. Philip Neri approached the topic of preparation for death. So, uh, I'd ask, uh, you open up your programs now that I'm done talking. And we can uh, start reading. And this time will be, we're going to read a little bit of text, and then I'm gonna, we're going to stop. And we're going to allow room for discussion. You can bring up anything you want. If anything I said you want to expound upon, actually, right now, does anyone have any comments, any points of discussion before we enter into the reading itself? No burning insights. That reminds me of uh, when John Paul II was dying, his last words, I believe, were, um, I'm going to my father's house. Thank you. All right. So, of the chapter, of preparation for death. In the time of health, we should be prepared for death. This is so necessary that St. Philip himself resigned the office of perpetual superior saying that he was old and desired some time to prepare himself for a good death. And um, I just want to stop here. That is not the reason why Father David is not the provost anymore. He's not preparing for death. Don't worry, okay? <laughs> just to put that, this, is not, this topic was chosen before that, so don't worry about that. All right, moving on. If then the saints, as he acknowledged, had death ever present to him, 
so we ought continually to place it before our mind's eye. This will be one of the most efficacious preparations for dying. Hold on. We learn from the life of St. Philip what was his preparation for death. He was every most detached from all earthly things, but two years before his death, he caused Cardinal Cassano to give him a small flask of wine and a little loaf by way of alms. Uh, Father Francesco Bozio, I believe that's Father, was once present when he received these things. He said, Francesco, I am preparing myself for death. I wish to live and die like a poor man. I am detached from all things, and therefore I support myself on these alms. Thus giving him to understand that whoever would attain perfection and die a good death must attach himself to nothing in this world. I'm not supposed to do the majority of the talking. <laughs> so it's a strange story here with this little uh, flask of wine and loaf of, of bread. Um, but it's sort of a good insight there, I think, that is worth bringing up now uh, in this one of the reading. Um, St. Philip wished to die as someone, as a poor person, as someone who was dead to the world that had was dead to possessions, um, that continually gave himself over to uh, mortification. Mortification of the desire to possess, the desire to enter into the things of the world, while ever yet remaining in the world. So I, I think there's probably something there to that. Is it symbolic of anything else? Okay. <laughs> 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 like, so is the, like, yeah, like, so it's sort of like the Atticum, in a sense, like the Eucharist. Yeah, there's almost like a, a natural parallel. What do you, uh, oh, we'll go on here. I was going to say, I've heard of some monks that that's all they, all they live on, right, is, is the, the communion bread, and, and, and the, you know, the, the, the bread of blood. I mean, I've heard of you know some monks in monasteries. That's all they do. So maybe I don't know if that I don't know if that was what Saint Paul was doing or not. But yeah. I guess that would be what In other contexts, he gives like the condemned man gets his last meal, and he gets something that he's attached to, even a uh, fine dining experience to, at the end. Think of those though uh, naturally dying, like uh, a great aunt or a grandmother, when she, they got to the point where they didn't want food. That was that was a sign that the body actually just naturally detaching itself. So maybe it's mimicking intentionally what the body would come to when when it really would be shutting down. Yeah, so. that's great. Like um, you guys know the expression YOLO. It's, it's very popular among the youth. Uh, it, it stands for uh, it stands for you only live once. I guess on Twitter they say hashtag YOLO, you know, you only live once. <laughs> like, do something crazy, because you only live once. Uh, and the idea that, like, you know, if you're going to die, well, you might as well do something, you might as well go out in style, you might as well, you know, uh, if you're going to die tomorrow, you know, party tonight. Skydive. Skydive, yeah, you got to skydive before you die, because you're not going to have a chance to do that in heaven. 
<laughs> I think, yeah, it's, this, is, this is great. This is like a really great, like, it's an entire front to that whole idea that you need to go out big. You need to take in all the enjoyments of this world because it's your last chance as if there's nothing better coming. Yeah. There's a book called uh, Die Broke, I think. It's about planning financially so that when you die, it's all kind of, it's all spent. It's all, whether for noble or, or not noble reasons. But, um, and, it, and, and yes, the financial planners, they say, well, I can tell you how to die broke if you know when you're going to die. But anyway. Um, but uh, in a sense, you know, planning to die broke is, is a little too perfect, right? It's uh, what you've just read. Uh, Philip would say, live broke, right? Yeah. St. John Vianney would pray at each passing of the, of the hour, the striking of the hour, you'd say, uh, time passes, eternity approaches, grant, O Lord, that I may live as I hope to die. So he wanted to live always in the manner that he wanted to be when he was uh, was dying. And so in, in this, another, well, you know, St. John Vianney also did that with the, with the potatoes and such. He wasn't really on a sumptuous diet at any point. I guess we could talk about other saints too. That's cool, I guess. St. <laughs> John Vianney is also a good saint. <laughs> Next month, school of St. John Vianney. <laughs> For the diocesan priests, it's something we can identify with. Yeah, St. Philip Mary is not a, a secular priest. That's worth, no, I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. This is my brother, so I pick on him. And he picks on me. Sorry, guys. Okay, let's move on. Let's see what else comes up here. Though we, though we may not die in one illness, we must at last die in another. Let the dying imagine that they, they hear St. Philip saying to them, My sons, you must die. And to those who have served God, death is most desirable and precious. So the saint adds, The true servants of God endure life and desire death. And could a soul altogether abstain from venial sin, the greatest suffering which it could endure, which, we did, which would be detention in this life, through its great desire of uniting itself to God. It's interesting, we're like on the cusp of modern science uh, where there's a great optimism that uh, we'll be able to prolong our lives longer and longer. You can look at things like, in genetics, uh, Every, every chromosome in our uh, nucleus, of the, every, every single cell in your body, uh, it has this end on it. It's called a cap. Like a cap. It's called a telomere. It, it hangs over the end. It, it, it's on the end of the, of the chromosome. And as you get older, as the cells divide, it becomes smaller and smaller. And the DNA is less able to you know, be integrated. Sometimes it, it more easily mutates. You get cancer. Uh, they see that these, the size of these telomeres is related to uh, the aging properties uh, in your skin and over, all over your body, and that uh, it's, a, it's one of these big effects on like, what actually causes you to age. And they think there might be some way of stopping these caps on the end of your chromosomes from shrinking over time. So there's this great optimism that people can live well past 100 and on and on. And, and then, the, like, but the question is then is like, so what? What are you living for? It's interesting, he says here, you know, we should desire death. That's sort of strange.
I guess, you know, if not everyone is quite yet a saint, and if they've done a lot of things they need to make amends for, uh, the longer you live is, like, more time for you to, like, sort of get your, your act in order, so to speak. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, you know, life is one thing after another, and it's filled with trials and tribulations, and so if a person isn't even committing menial sins, then I can imagine that they would think that it would be better to, um, you know, be in heaven, you know, if they were sort of thinking that they probably would be there. Yeah, it's much better than living out a long life on earth that's filled with problems. That's just the way life is natural. How do you help people prepare for death? Like, when you're taking care of them? And, you know, like, I work in a nursing home. I've seen lots of people die. And how do you prepare them for a good death? I mean, happy death? Yeah, happy death. Well, I can comment a little bit about that. Um, I do ministry to the dying. And uh, a lot of it is just walking them through their life and helping them evaluating it, seeing God's providence throughout their life, despite what type of life they have lived. And oftentimes, I find people are just holding on because they have all these anxieties. What's going to happen to my kids? Are they going to be okay, etc.? And I found the preparing for the happy death is to help relieve those anxieties, those doubts, out of their mind, especially help them analyze their lives more in those uh, difficult moments that they had, anything that they regret, just try to help them make amends before they meet their maker. There's also along that there's um, this book that's called I think something like um, something like the four most important things. Uh, it's like the four things that everyone kind of needs before they die. Um, this, like this is besides like sacraments and things like that, but uh, the four things are for everyone this, that they say thank you, I love you, um, I forgive you, and forgive me. Like so, it's kind of like being thankful for their, the gifts that they've received, saying I love you to the people that they need to, and then asking forgiveness, and then also forgiving. Those are kind of Sense. And, I, and I think there's an extra, uh, as Catholics, um, if this person dying is Catholic, uh, you know, get a priest to them. Let them have a chance to hear, uh, I forgive you from God himself. Uh, let them not just hear it, let's actually have that forgiveness be effective in their lives. You know, if, well, so many people are holding on to sins unconfessed. Let's, let's give them some peace about their life. Let's give them the chance, you know, to get to finally make that good confession that they always needed to do. And then, uh, if, if possible, I mean, sometimes, you know, someone's already, you know, beyond the point where they can make a, 
a confession. There's a scene from uh, uh, at the end of Brideshead Revisited where uh, the, the fellow, uh, there was a guy that was essentially dying, um, it was kind of stretched out, and he didn't, he didn't, uh, he was kind of resisting talking to a priest, and uh, he held off for a long time, and he was finally in, uh, in his last stages, right, getting ready to die, and so they finally, the family finally brought the priest in, and the, uh, the priest said, you know, if you can hear me, like, give, you know, give some sign that you are sorry for your sins, and, uh, and no response. And the guy, I knew the guy was, you know, pretty much ready to die right away. And the, uh, this is a fictional story, so it's not even a real life story. But even so, uh, the, uh, well, the priest gave the blessing, and uh, the guy made the sign on the cross with the priest. And it was a sign that, like, that he was still there. He was holding on, waiting for that forgiveness, and so- somehow. Um, it's so much easier, though, if the priest gets there on time, you call the priest. If you're in a situation, and some of you know is Catholic, and they're going to die soon, call the priest. Call, call my brother, Father Gruber. <laughs> get someone out there. This is the most important thing, that someone dies, uh, you know, in the state of grace. Uh, that, that's, that's crucial. Uh, also, what they can receive, well, the apostolic pardon, when it's clear that it's coming to, to death, that uh, they can uh, get an indulgence, plenary indulgence. The one that's not even under the usual conditions. You don't have to have anything else uh, uh, as much as you, you just uh, are given this indulgence. Uh, and uh, be sure to, to ask uh, for that and make clear to the priest that that is, uh, is needed. But it's so much better when they can still be conscious to be able to confess their sins. It's, uh, it's possible to, to do something if it's even just like the uh, blinking of, uh, of an eye. I met someone who couldn't even talk anymore but was conscious enough to, uh, to give some sign of, of a yes or no to basic questions from an examination of conscience, but better still if it's a little earlier. Along with that, with what anyone could do, is the chaplet of divine mercy. I know a man who was, uh, was called to the death of a friend, and uh, he was a devout prayer warrior already, and he was like, oh, I can at least pray the chaplet of divine mercy. And uh, it's a beautiful prayer, uh, and it is that action of just plunging your whole self, your soul into this ocean of divine mercy, and, and that accomplishes a lot of those, those things that they need to be doing. They wouldn't replace all of them, they want them to have to reach out to family and friends if there's any estrangement, if there's anything they reconcile, but, uh, but uh, there's uh, special promises according to uh, St. Faustina as far as uh, uh, special power and uh, uh, the mercy of, uh, of Jesus for, uh, for those who, who have uh, Prayed the chapel of divine mercy at their death, or even it was prayed in their presence. Yeah. I'd like to share a story of a relative of mine that passed away recently. And when my parents, you know, that we got the phone call, they said that you know our relative had like 24 hours to live on on a Saturday. And I said, and they said, do you want to go to the hospital? I thought, well, I don't know if what good that would do, but I thought, you know, we need to either. she had been up, you know, away from the church for many years, a long, long time, and, and so, uh, I mean, the family wasn't practicing Catholic anymore, and so my mother went over and gave the, the medal to her daughter, and when I found out later, well, she was given 24 hours to live, she actually lived like 48 hours more, another extra day or two, and I found out at, at the 
funeral later that uh, her vital signs came back, and she was able to receive last last rites. And her daughter, her daughters, was sort of afraid uh, at first to call a priest because they thought she would be scared by a priest, like hearing the priest say the prayers. But uh, I, I really believe it's a miracle. It's a work by our blessed mother that the priest came in, and gave her last rites. She was buried in the church, and she had that medal on her in the casket. Wow. Let's just kind of go along with that. Huh? There, I mean, there's, I can think of many powerful stories of people near death or that have died related to the chaplet of my mercy, related to our, our latest intercession. We can do, there could be a lot of stories. Um, I, I just want to maybe, maybe close that off until we, because I don't want this to be the, like a heavy, heavy, like, sharing session necessarily, like all these different times when, because at that hour of death is going to be the most grace-filled moment in a lot of people's lives. It will be, uh, especially if we pray for Pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Not just my death, but our death. Uh, you know, Mary will be with us there. Our Lord will be there. Uh, make a point of being there. We can there be a lot of stories, but I, uh, just kind of to punctuate that a little bit. If you're with someone who's dying, do not be afraid to pray. Don't, like, don't be afraid to be the only one that makes a sign of the cross and start offering prayers. Don't, like, like you know, be that witness if you have to or, or whatever. Uh, that, but that's that's crucial, um, and if that person can pray with you, even more so. Like this is, they're getting ready to to meet God, uh, death, judgment, uh, and then heaven or hell. It's a it's a very very pivotal moment. Uh, so don't don't be afraid to pray anything. Chapter by mercy. If you don't know the chapter by mercy, just pray hail marys if you have to. If you don't know that, do something short and easy, and or whatever you know, whatever you can. Um, prayer is is really really important. Can you have last rites by desire? Like if if the priest won't come, and which is not often, but does happen that no one will show up and you go around trying to call for last rites. Um, do you get it by desire? Like they say, there's baptism by desire, that you desire it, so the Lord grants it to you. Is that true of last rites? So I mean, you do have something called uh, perfect contrition. Um, which is if you, uh, if you, what are the conditions for that? I, if you are truly, you know, very sorry for your sins, and you make an act of perfect contrition, you know, you, you will be forgiven. That that's sort of like this desire. You don't necessarily need to. I mean, if you if you have perfect contrition, and you're, you get better, you still need to go to confession. But uh, <laughs> there's that for sure. I've never heard the expression um, uh, "last rites by desire" or "anointing of the sick by desire" or "viaticum by desire." But what's the uh, the adage? Um, Plays your supplet. Say that. Plays your supplet. The church supplies. The church supplies. What does that explain that in this context? Well, see that that uh, usually for in the, in the administration of the sacraments uh, that the church would supply, uh, like if the priest used the anointing oil that wasn't actually blessed, but he thought it was, that maybe that uh, you could okay. have the church supplies, uh, but. Uh, because it's not much more for having a little uh, blessing. It, uh, I would say, though, uh, yeah, act of perfect contrition is significant because the contrition, because uh, not of, out of uh, just an earthly motive or out of uh, uh, fear of hell or, or uh, the loss of heaven, but because of the love of God, yeah. to stir up the pure love of God, to think of the love that Jesus shows us on the cross and stir up those, that, that uh, heartfelt uh, act of contrition. And, and the act of spiritual communion. It's something, 
apropos actually of the topic, in that that one what one's desire would be to have theaticum is that you could at least make servant acts of spiritual communion and preparing for a holy death we can be making continuously acts of spiritual communion to and be converging towards this attitude in the, on, on this uh, page here of uh, that the, the greatest desire of uniting itself to God. If we're really wanting that, if we imagine that's where we'd be at death, if we had no other ministry of a priest and no, no one else to be with us, we'd be making acts of spiritual communion, we'd learn, yearning to be with God and with our Lord in Holy Communion, if only to be in our hearts. We can be extending that invitation to our Lord continuously in our lives. Yeah. And just maybe to cap that off, uh, so we can return to the text, uh, God is not bound by the sacraments. You know, the sacraments are, are for, for man to reach God, but God can work outside of the sacraments, the explicit sacraments, and you know, bring healing and uh, uh, work through the desire uh, of someone. If they're especially in situations where the desire is there, but the priest isn't, or you know, no one's there to bring bad to come or anything, something like that. So and that's something you know, part of our, you know, God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. Yeah, he will. He can step in and intervene in whatever way in that person's heart. On the other side, even though someone could be putting off their conversion to the end and figure, I'll just get to absolution by thy last breath, God is not mocked. So sometimes uh, even uh, the desire of a priest to make it there, he's impeded, be, uh, and circumstances are such that the person who, um, in a kind of callous and uh, irreverent way, uh, will obstinately refuse to seek out reconciliation with God and the church uh, until his deathbed, he might not be granted the ministry of a priest, and that's not guaranteed to, yeah. to us. So that's, that's, that, that's, that's, that's presumption. So, yeah. And authentic desire, authentic hope, uh, lies um, between presumption and despair. Uh, and it's, it's uh, clinging to God uh, in those occasions there with uh, authentic desire. Let's continue with the text, try to get through all of this. There could be a lot to discuss, so I'm glad this is before their interest is now perked. St. <laughs> Philip, to prevent our having a horror of death, exhorts and encourages us to persevere in a spiritual life, telling us that the Lord never sends death to a spiritual man without giving him some imitation, intimation of its approach and imparting to him an extraordinary measure of spirituality. That's exactly right. The, the, uh, that God, God provides, and yeah, the Lord never sends death without giving him some... That, that almost sounds too extreme, though. That a man, The point there, I guess, that a spiritual man is, you know, because he is someone that's already trying to conform his heart and his life to God, that God's not going to abandon him and give him some idea that death is coming. I think probably the ideal for all of us, because they say you never know when like those poor people in Paris, that they know they're going to be like shot. <clears throat> like St. Benedict would always advise his monks, always keep death before your eyes. Yeah, momentum more. So if you have that in your mind, knowing that, I mean, no one does know when it is your last, that helps prepare your life to keep spiritually on track. That not everybody has an illness that you're in a hospital and can call a priest and go to confession. All of a sudden, you're in a car accident. Poof, you're gone. So if you have that awareness, yeah. and that's, that kind of will carry you a long way. 
and that's kind of like St. John Vianney, always living to be ready for death. The, uh, the uh, holy card we have back there. I made sure to have this image, because I like the image. But also, the, the right corner, there's a, well, there's a crucifix, and then there's a skull. And it's always a strange thing to see skulls in pictures, especially because it's like St. Philip teaching Cardinal Borromeo. But like the idea that death is always present in your studies, in every aspect of your life, that you have a remembrance of death. That, you know, you must have studied, and in your study, you must have learned that man is mortal. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to mention that when Brother Peter was giving him like, the instructions about the holy card, he asked her to put more light on it, so the skull really popped. <laughs> so, he really wanted to make sure the skull was there. Um, but actually, what I was thinking, and this, this is going to sound maybe like a little flippant at first, but I'm not meaning to be facetious, but um, the, the passage, the telling that the Lord never sends death to a spiritual man without giving him some intimation of its approach, that can sound really dramatic, like we all... I don't know if you've seen the movie The Island, but like the, the holy monk knows he's about to die. So Not the Michael just, Bay version. Yeah, no, it's this Russian movie um, about, a, about a monk. Uh, he goes to bed in his coffin that night because he knows he's going to die. So he just figures he'd save his brothers the trouble um, and climb in. Uh, <laughs> so, but I mean, it could be read as dramatic like that, but it doesn't say it's imminent approach. There you go, yeah. It says intimation of its approach. It could be years away, mm -hmm. and a truly spiritual Good. man would be given this constant intimation. And it reminds me of um, John Climacus. One of the passages in his latter divine ascent that I thought was the most um, really beautiful and, and, and it just like struck me as so true and especially over time was that the remembrance of death is one of the greatest graces that God can give because he says you know walk through a cemetery and try to drive it home to yourself like I'm going to die there's going to be a moment I'm breathing and it literally will be the last one like try to convince yourself you're going to die and you'll never be able to succeed. You'll always leave it, live in this kind of like subconscious pushing off and, and denial that it's gonna happen, but then you're sitting at breakfast and it strikes you and all of a sudden it's like your blood's running cold and you know you're gonna die. And he says that's, that is a gift and it's a, it's a knowledge and a, a vision that can only be given by God because that's you're never going to have a moment where you're more motivated to perfect repentance and perfect contrition than the moment that you are truly convinced that you are going to die. And it sounds weird to say, like, we're not always convinced we're going to die, but I really don't think we are. I think we mostly stay sane by subconsciously telling ourselves we're like the first person in history who's going to be immortal. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean... Because otherwise we would live our lives like we were dying, and we don't. Yeah, well, actually, interesting thing. Um, you notice that the prayer in the back of this card is from blessed John Henry Newman. When he was 60, he was convinced he was going to die. He wasn't sick, he had nothing wrong with him, no one else suspected anything, but he wrote in his, in his little diary, you know, dear diary, <laughs> um, <laughs> he says uh, that, uh, that he feels like death uh, 
it will come upon him, and this is what he wants to have happen when death comes upon him. And he lived for another 30 years. I don't know if he ever left, like, he ever forgot that he was going to die in those 30 years. Maybe that's something to do with him being blessed, John Henry Newman, not just, you know, John Henry Newman, the great convert. Let's, uh, let's plow through with a little bit more of the reading. Indeed, many times, when the saint was ill, he did not omit to prepare himself for death by the holy sacraments, and said sometimes, I shall not die of this illness, for God, who has hitherto shown me so many favors, would not now leave me so destitute of devotion as I am, were this the hour of my death. He recovered from these illnesses, and when he seemed at the last extremity, and those about him appeared amazed, as in one instance, when he threw up a large quantity of blood from his mouth, he turned with a cheerful countenance to a person who was looking at him, and said, What? Are you afraid? I have not the slightest fear. <laughs> so those who have been instructed in his school do not fear death, but rather seem to desire it. That's us. <laughs> Having, through the divine grace, persevered in well-doing, which by imitating the virtues of our saints we shall be unable to do, we shall, when our death is announced to us, be able to say with him, O oh my Lord, if thou wilt have me, here I am. O oh my Lord, I have not known thee, I have not done any good, which words the saint used to accompany with tears. We may also say like him, when given over by the physicians, I am ready, and I am not troubled. Yeah, well, it just occurs to me that um, I just had a long talk with my spiritual director about dying today, so I actually have this on my mind, um, but uh, it occurs to me that something about this kind of confidence can come off sounding like, like it's said lightly, or like it's said with some sort of like, well, my life has been good now, or I made a confession, or like, I repented enough, and and that it can come off kind of um, not saintly, but kind of like presumptuous and strange. But that it's interesting. It's I think it's important to to hear all of this in the context of like Philip's life, where he's not just saying out of some kind of like piety but truly believes like I have never done any good and whatever evils I haven't done it's only but by the grace of God and he to know that the source of his confidence has nothing to do with like the life he lived and he's like confident because he lived a good life but he's confident because he's come to experience the mercy and compassion of God in such a way that he can trust him like that. Like Gemma Golgani said this really amazing thing that I think about a lot and she said like, oh my Jesus, I trust in your mercy so much that even if when I die I find myself 
at the mouth of hell about to be cast in, I still won't believe that, like, I'll still believe you're going to save me. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I think that that's really good insight. Like, all the impetus is on God. If there's mm -hmm. anything good in your life, it's God that's done it. I mean, I would love, uh, in my own pride, to say at the end of my life, wow, I've done good. I look back at my, all my accomplishments, my many years of fruitful priesthood as an oratorian, and all these great things, and say, oh, good, thank you, God, for letting, you know, letting me do all this good stuff for you. And that's not the attitude of a saint. The saint is, you know, I've done no good. It's God that's done anything. Uh, and I've been his weak <laughs> instrument at best, but I've mostly been inhibiting him in the whole process. And that's, that's a really good insight. But isn't that the same as an awareness of what Christ said, that you can do nothing without me? So just having that realization, yeah. you realize even at the time of your death, and also no matter how you how spiritual you, you try to live a good life, but also like in divine mercy, he said, you know, my mercy is greater than any of your sins. Yeah. So just that realization. Yeah, it's it's if you really truly believe that our whole life as Christians, uh, it flows from Christ's crucifixion, and comes from the grace of baptism. And that really hit home. If we truly lived out our baptism fully, then this would not be this would not be an issue. And the, the difficulty is having to continually die to self, even after you're baptized. Remind yourself, I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. God has claimed me. I'm dead to this world. Like a soldier going into battle has to convince himself that the only you know the only way he's able to get by is if he thinks he's already dead. And that's why he's able to do crazy things and go into gunfire and whatever else, because he's already dead. Well, in Christianity, we're, we're already dead. We've been baptized. We are dead to this world. God has us. God has every claim on us. Trust in him. As our culture gets more and more secularized, it's very, very difficult to keep that in mind. Yeah. You know, because everything is youth-oriented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as far as it keeps getting, you know, more and more spun out, it's harder for people really to keep that in mind. I just wanted to state the obvious, too, that um, you know, if the person has led a sacred relationship with Philip Mary and St. Teresa of Lisieux, you know, they were both very happy at death. And um, just the fact that they knew that they would be seeing God that would draw them towards a happy death. Yeah. Just a matter of love. You know, that's the next step of the happy that they've Yeah. I something to that. Um, God sometimes gives people at the moment of death or very, very close to it a realization of his love for them and desire to, to, be, with, to be with him and they, uh, a greater certainty of the reality of heaven. Uh, and that can really help pull someone uh, in peace and uh, with desire, looking forward to that. Uh, not to get, not to presume upon that, though, but uh, God sometimes so graces souls uh, a doubt of their death. I do wonder sometimes what happens, though, with, you hear about saints, like, I don't know enough about her life, like St. Teresa of Calcutta, to know where she was at at death, but people who went through long periods of darkness spiritually, where they were like just barely hanging on by a thread yeah. and they didn't feel God's presence. And you wonder, were those people capable of having this kind of desire for death? Or was it more just kind of like a, 
sorrowful resignation to the nothingness that they saw gaping. Like, you know, like you wonder where you would get this kind of confidence and desire for death if your faith is like this just barely hanging on and there is no I think sense the, the, of community. The thing there is that the, it's that comes down to the, the perceived, uh, like they perceive their faith as barely hanging on, but their faith is incredibly strong at that point. And because without that faith, without the real knowledge of, of where God's taking them, their, their hope wouldn't be much. Uh, it just doesn't feel much, but it's, it has to be much. Right, I mean, the reality, they're, they're doing fine in, in terms of reality, but you wonder about their attitude. Like, if they feel themselves like, okay, it's time to die, and they're in this dark place, faith-wise, you wonder, are they, like, in terror? or? But I, in know? that case, they're not, they're not in a dark place, faith-wise. Their experience of it is. Because what happens in the advanced spiritual life is that it's a death, a continual death to things, a death to senses, a death to feelings, a death to consolations in prayer, uh, a death to, you know, knowing that you are loved by, that having that knowledge that you're loved by God, even a death to that, and still hanging on in hope, still hanging on in faith, uh, and then, you know, hopefully having a, and the desire of remaining there the whole time. I don't think it's a, a lack of desire at that point. I don't think it's just a sorrowful resignation for these things. It's like a holy surrender. Yeah. We think of it in terms of uh, like how many other souls they're holding up by their faith. So they're not weak at all, to say, but because you feel like you're bodily weak, but you don't, if you didn't realize you were actually uh, dragging along all these other, uh, all this behind you, then like, oh, well, yeah, actually, if you didn't have those, you would be soaring up, but, yeah. but uh, the way, like, uh, Blessed uh, Teresa of Calcutta had, uh, had, had been praying for so many and experiencing that darkness, uh, not only for her own soul's good, but for uh, a kind of uh, victim soul for, for others. For others, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Okay, we've got, to get, got some more text to get through, and we're, we're getting close to the end of this hour, so I'm going to breeze through the last section of text. we have a little more discussion, and then we'll end with a prayer and the hymn. You don't have to breeze through. We technically advertise it as going till 8.30. Okay, we have to go into 8.30, so save your comments, and let's, let's talk this thing out. St. <laughs> right. Philip, by making a general confession in those illnesses which were thought to be mortal, though he himself did not so regard them, gives us an example for our, our, intimation, our imitation when we are ill. When receiving the Holy Viaticum, we must take example from the humility of our Holy Father, who, when he, was, when he received it, at the words, Domine non sum dignus, repeated them with great devotion, saying, O my Lord, I am not worthy. I never was worthy, and I have never done any good. In this tremendous moment of death, if we have been devoted to St. Philip, and have practiced this devotion, by imitating his holy virtues as far as permitted, we may hope to experience the fruits of our devotion in this most seasonable time, remembering that our saint is most wonderful, and his assistance of the dying. Stop there for a little bit. I do want to touch on, um, so this is talk about St. Philip receiving viaticum. And the um, cool thing about the Eucharist, especially, it's, um, well, the cool thing about the sacraments in general, like they, the sacraments are made for us here on earth. But they are for the man that's on the journey, man that's on the way towards heaven. 
And the Holy Eucharist, especially, you get this, uh, the sense. It is, uh, as Vaticum, Viaticum, as comes from the word for the way, via, Viaticum, it is, a, is food for the journey, the ultimate journey, the crossover from death to life. Um, and how maybe every time we receive the Eucharist, it could, you know, coincidentally be our, the last time we receive it, it could be our Viaticum. The Eucharist itself is a reminder that we are meant for heaven, that God is leading us there. And especially because it is, you know, the source and summit of our Christian life, it is most especially united to Christ's own crucifixion, Christ's own death. And in remembering that when we receive our Lord, this is not just a, like, this is a, a sort of temporal thing. It's a temporal thing. It's meant, though, for eternity. Like the, the manna in the desert that was for their exodus, and Jesus of Transfiguration, speaking of the exodus he would accomplish in Jerusalem, uh, the exodus of his passion. So we are uh, uh, recalling that, that journey, that the, and the manna ceased when they came into to the Promised Land, all the way up to that point. So the, the whole Eucharist is Jesus' own exodus itself and nourishment for our, our, our exodus. Our, uh, Pope Benedict talks about this, like our journey out of ourselves to, to, uh, to radical and authentic love. Therefore, our chief hope being placed in that blood which our Redeemer shed for us, we may say with others, I have not confidence in myself, but I hope to save myself by means of Philip. Others said, O Mary, mother of Jesus, and thou, blessed Philip, help me. I think it's a good point to maybe reiterate and uh, bring out a little bit more. Um, St. Philip is not just a model of how to prepare for death. Uh, he's also uh, an intercessor at that crucial point. I mean, lots of saints are. You can pick up a lot of saints uh, uh, and pray to them at that point. I mean, they're not going to be let down by the communion of saints. But St. Philip, especially as someone involved in the life of the oratory here, you can have St. Philip as a special patron, a go-to saint. Uh, he's powerful in this life, and he's proven himself to be powerful in the next, doing good for us on earth. So even at the moment of death, you know, Philip, pray for me. You know, to throw, uh, and also, I mean, of course, Mary, of course. But, I have to mention St. Joseph. Yeah, let's throw him in there. What? What? No, no mention of St. Joseph in this reading. You notice that? Is he, isn't he like the official patron of the, the happy death? Yeah, the patron of happy death. Because Jesus was like, traditionally he was there when he died. Jesus and Mary were there when Joseph died. Yeah, it's like the perfect way to go. Yeah, uh... And the devotion to St. Joseph, it's gone. I mean, some people in this room know more about the devotion to St. Joseph through the ages than I do. But uh, it's become, a, especially uh, in the past uh, 150 years, it has really picked up. St. Joseph has been recognized as a universal patron, not just a patron of, you know, teachers or something like that, or a patron of fathers, but like someone that we're all supposed to pray to. Uh, and especially at the moment of death, St. Joseph is held up. Um, as, some, as a go-to saint, uh, to pray for his intercession at that point as well, which makes sense. I mean, he was close to Our Lady, he was close to Our Lord. Um, and I don't know, I, it was a funny thing, uh, a few months ago, 
I was joking around um, with my, my brother about uh, is there a special category of uh, honor that we give to St. Philip Neri? So in the saints, you got, uh, you got dulia, which is like the honor given to saints, and you got latria, which is the honor given to God. So it's like adoration, praise, and you know, all these good things you give to God. That's like idolatry, latria, that's worshiping. Uh, but with saints, we, we honor them, we, you know, we, we pray to them, we, we, this is, but it's not, it's not worshiping them as God. It's not an idolatry to, have, uh, to look to the saints. So we call that another category, the church fathers developed this, called dulia. But Mary has a special place among the saints as the highest, as the one most perfectly conformed to Christ, as the one through, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, cooperated so perfectly in the redemption that, uh, you know, through her, through her fiat, God himself became man. That's pretty big. So let's give her a new category. Let's call it Dulia, but we're going to call it Hyperdulia. Like, even more Dulia. Like, even more honored her as Mary. Uh, it's to show her special place. And, uh, and it's been... The, uh, for St. Joseph, he has a pretty high place, too, among the saints, that people would like to, uh, it's not official, it's not like we ever has to go around calling, saying this, but they give him a category of proto-dulia. <laughs> if you want to be also, just, you know, you use funny Greek words and whatever. Um, so, like, St. Joseph gets an extra special place there. And I was joking with some of my brothers, uh, St. Philip should get his own category, but since, since uh, St. Joseph is proto-dulia, which is, like, the first, we're going to call St. Uh, Philip uh, we're going to have Deuterodulia, <laughs> which I think adequately expresses the spirituality of uh, this group and the oratory. <laughs> yeah, but, sorry, that's an aside. That was my, that was my brother's creation, Deuterodulia. Uh, but yeah, St. Joseph, uh, great person to go to at the hour of death. Um, a point back on St. I was um, doing some reading on the Holy Souls in Purgatory today, and they mentioned that St. Philip Neri is actually a good person to go, like a good go-to person to pray for the poor souls in Purgatory as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was, it was just like an interesting, like, really? And I was like, okay. There's no need to like jump around St. Hop. <laughs> That's definitely a temptation as Catholics. You wanna, you want something good to happen. You don't want to just get like one saint praying for it. You have to like get like all the saints praying for it. So you like think of every saint in the communion of saints, and you try to get them praying. And you know, like every, if they're a patron of something, you know, you get Saint Jude, it's hopeless cause. And you get Saint Anthony because there's something lost. And you need to throw them all together, and we're gonna get a nice saint party to pray to God to get something good happening. And that's, that's not bad. But, I mean, St. Philip is a pretty good person just to go to on his, on his own, even, uh, on Our Lady, uh, especially. I mean, I, we've already brought up a few times, but the, the Hail Mary. You know, if you pray the rosary, you pray 53 times a day, you know, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We don't think about that too often. Cool story, before we... Um, light story, huh? Uh, but, uh, the, um, well, like, seven years ago, so we were, I was a, when I was a student... We were on our way to a focus conference, uh, fellowship with Catholic University students. It was a 30-hour bus ride in Texas. And on the way down, we had a couple bus drivers, and uh, we, were, we prayed, you know, chapter of divine mercy, rosary, might have done some hours in the office. And um, at one of the rest stops, uh, one of the bus drivers, they weren't Catholic, they asked Father Mike. They said, uh, so this is really, you, you guys are such a great group. 
Um, but we were wondering, what is that prayer you always you you, uh, you always say about death? Oh, my. oh uh, let me try to think. Um, <laughs> is it, maybe it's the Chapel of Divine Mercy. Um, uh, maybe that's it. Uh, and then it occurred. It's the Rosary. It's the Hail Mary. All the, it's like all they heard was you know in unison you know fifty students saying pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen over and over and over <laughs> and like we how do we miss this and like we say we say death all the time we pray for Mary's intercession at the hour of our death at, all the time uh, it's one of those great ways in which death kind of permeates the authentically Christian life. One hope is to be able to. Uh avoid purgatory, and there are some saints, even the, the tool like Pope, they say, Pope Blessed Pius IX endured his purgatory on this earth. And it goes back to what's on the <laughs> second page, uh, that the, uh, the soul that altogether abstaining from venial sin, the greatest suffering can endure to be tension in this life, and that's what the, the greatest suffering of the soul in purgatory is, waiting yeah. to be with God. So, in a way, we're like consciously saying, yes, Lord, purge me, and, and uh, now with this, the this deep desire to be with you, so I don't have to endure that purgation, that detention, that delay uh, after death. Yeah, I think there's something to that too. When you were talking earlier about prolonging our life, there's sometimes God allows that in, in His providence. Um, in the Divine Mercy uh, devotion, um, our Lord said to Saint Faustina that uh, you know He would have come in His second coming a lot earlier, but He wanted to prolong the time of mercy for the world, and also in our own individual lives that. You know, God could take us right away if he wanted to, but he wants to give us as much time as possible to repent, to turn back to him, uh, you know, to go to confession, to start living an authentically Christian life, to be filled with his grace. And he wants that. He wants us to grow in that love. And it's, it's mercy that, allows, that God allows us to live longer in order to conform ourselves to him in this time. So we don't have to do it after we die in purgatory without the added advantage of growing in charity in the process. St. Paul said that to his people, didn't he? That consider the patience of the Lord, him giving you a chance for salvation. And they're all like, it's already 50 AD. Why does it come yet? Yeah, our Lord said it's going to come again. What's, what's the deal? Yeah, I know. We're supposed to be here. It's not 2015. Maybe that's why he didn't come. Yeah, and then he really screwed them all up by saying that there were people present who wouldn't die until he'd come again. And so they have like all these people, and they're like, "Well, he, they're not dead yet." Well, I, I do like I do like the point. I'm, I'm very I'm very thankful that our our Lord has waited to come for a second coming because otherwise I would not have been born. Nor Saint Philip Neri. Nor Saint Philip Neri would even be born. So that's even more important. <laughs> It takes a lot to live that out, out that devotion, of course, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. We have one more paragraph. Okay. <laughs> Time to talk about Satan. <laughs> and if the infernal enemy suggests temptations to us, or presents vile and hideous apparitions visibly to us, 
let us remember that the very name of Philip was terrible to the devils, who fled on hearing it, and ceased to tempt the dying. Let us use these mighty words, pronounced by others in similar conflicts. I appeal to Philip, with a lively confidence, that as they who use them were saved, so may we be who, invoking the most holy names of Jesus and Mary, add that of Philip, Jesus, Mary, Philip, with the hope of passing to the place of eternal safety, which God, of his infinite mercy, grant through the intercession of our, our Holy Father Philip, and may he, through the intercession of the most holy Virgin Mary, obtain for us a happy passage into, into eternity. Nowadays we throw you know, Philip, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, <laughs> this sounds really like gloomy, but maybe just like as far as praying for people who are dying or even just contemplating like what it'll be like to die. It's like it would be easy to underestimate not just how much God wants us, but how much Satan wants us. Like how incredibly, to underestimate how fierce the battle over each individual soul really is. So it's not just like, oh, well, too bad, I lost this one, that's too bad. Like that hour or minute or fuzzy time, half in, half out, is, is both of it's you know it's our guardian devil and our guardian angel's last chance you know and I think it's interesting that when you do hear accounts I don't you know we don't want to get into a whole bunch of near-death experiences but it's interesting that in so many accounts of that people experience the sensation of being pulled in two different directions like being almost like ripped apart and um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a frightening thing to think that present won't just be like these loving arms waiting to embrace you. Like, you are a thing of great value that's being fought over. Yeah. The war between the angels and the, and the demons is not just a war about who gets more space in heaven or on earth, whatever. It's, it's a war over every human heart. And it's most... Uh, powerfully going on at that hour of death where it is our last chance. And how, how is how is Satan going to pull us? It might not always be uh, apparitions uh, and uh, you know vile things. It could very well be, of course. But uh, it could be giving into despair. Uh, giving up giving up all hope at the last moment. It could be just giving into anxiety. Uh, letting, you know, uh, you know, letting the anxiety overtake you at that last moment and uh, giving yourself over to that uh, in that way, instead of entering into God's peace. It could be any different things. You know, Satan's creative and we're all different. Uh, but to have some some recourse at that point, to have just habitually, you know, Holy Mary, pray for me. Have that come. You know, go to the Hail Mary at that moment. Just have it be something that you, it's a go-to. Make it, you know, devote your life to Mary. You'll be safe. Have St. Philip there as your special patron. He'll, he'll act. He'll, you know, he'll, he'll step in. He cares about this, too. He has a stake in this. Um, and God definitely has a stake in it. So, like, you know, just that it's something human have you ever talked about that? You know, it's not like someone ever dies and says comes back and says, Hey, when you die, remember these things. Because it's something I wish I would have known. Maybe someone has had that experience.
I don't know. But the, uh, <laughs> that'd be nice. But here, it, it, there's a nice little, these are good things to keep in mind at the most important part of our life, which is our death. That's why it's called preparation for a holy death. Yeah. Preparation. Right, well, should we should prepare every day. Exactly. That is and, and how, so. and let's make it as easy, easy as possible. Yeah. Let's not give in to anxieties now. Yeah. Let's not uh, give in to despair now. Let's have constant recourse to prayer now. Let us die to uh, our, our sinful inclinations, our lazinesses, our, our whatever thoughts, the vile thoughts. That if we habitually entertain vile thoughts, well, it's going to be hard to you know, put them away once you're about to die. We need to die to all these things now. We need to die to sin. You need to, you know, be aware of the grace we have in baptism. We need to have that constantly renewed in the sacrament of confession. And we need to live a fully Christian life. And the whole fully Christian life is being ready for a fully Christian death. It's like practicing. Like calling on the name of the saints and Mary now is like practice for what you're going to do then. Yeah. And if you're not used to doing it now, you're probably not going to be like, oh, calling on Mary. There's a, like, there's does anyone a, else have an image, by the way, of like Mary instead of Arwan standing at the river saying, "If you want him, come and claim him." So <laughs> I, I just can totally imagine that. It'd be a great meme. If you're, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, maybe. Yeah. So if you're a, a fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, that's that is. Forever so. be in my mind. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's something to that. <laughs> My apologies if you don't watch yeah. Lord of the Rings. Uh, and chances are, when you're when you die, you, you probably won't remember all the things that you said you'd remember. remember yeah. Uh, a man relayed to me the story of his mother, whose health was declining and wine was going, but she had that habit of the rosary, so it's probably what we've covered here. But you know, even even when wine started to go, she couldn't speak. She still had that rosary in the hands. Yeah. yeah. And that habit habits go deeper than than you know memory. Mm -hmm. I I I'm gone. When my aunt was dying, she died at 93, and she suffered greatly, um, all kinds of physical problems. And I said, you know, you can offer the suffering up. And she said, I want to pray, but I, I can't really pray now. All I can say is, my Jesus, mercy. What more? What more do you need? But that was also the prayer she learned and prayed many times when she was in grateful. Yes. She always prayed that. So mm -hmm. that was add that to the end. Talk about preparation. Yes. Yeah. And then there's wearing a scapular. I'm not asking, but I'm just curious, you know, I'm wondering how many people in the room here have a scapular right now, you know. Yeah. You know have that. Yeah. Being completely devoted to Mary is a very, very safe bet. Um, I've taken rosaries and in my patients, the residents, when they were dying, and, and bad things were happening, let's just say, and I wrapped them around their arms and it's all stopped. Yeah. Is there some, they were not in, a, in the ability, they weren't even conscious to pray the rosary, but there's something about the rosary that they know it's there. There's, it. I mean, it's not just a, a superstitious thing, but it is, I mean, for yourself, it is a, as a prayer to Our Lady to come and intercede in a special way at that moment. Yeah, but, I mean, I really think she shows up. Yeah, I think I so, mean, too. <laughs> I think it's, it's a, like, that's a good go-to. Like, I, um, I don't want to, yeah, I'll violate my own rules. Um, last year, I was in hospital ministry uh, for a seminary for once a week. We'd go to a hospital, and all I knew about the patients was their name, and that they were, said they were Catholic on a form somewhere. And so I'd walk into these rooms, I didn't know who I was dealing with. And uh, one person who walked in, 
and he was being monitored, uh, his heart rate was just being monitored. There was no blood pressure monitoring going on. And I sort of knew that meant that, like, they stopped monitoring blood, blood pressure if the person is expected to die soon. And uh, no one else was there. He was a guy, and he was in pain, you could tell. And so I said, you know, uh, Robert, I, I'm here, I'm, I'm a seminarian, I'm here to visit you. Uh, I'm going to pray a rosary with you. I got down on my knees, and I'm not a big fan of holding hands in prayer, but you got to do something with people in, in hospitals. <laughs> and to give them some, like, physical awareness that I'm there. And so I, I, I started praying the rosary. And, and before, he was like, he said, help me, help me. That's all he's able to say. And I'm like, oh, man, what do I do? So I, just, I started praying the rosary, you know, out loud. And um, he started praying it with me. And uh, it went from, you know, he started saying, help me, help me, to Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Whatever he can get in. And um, I prayed for a little bit, and I left, and the family came in. The uh, family came in, then I left, uh, and it was good. they were there with them. I don't know if he said anything else after that. He might not have. But that man's last words might have been, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Any other comments? Finally, just want to encourage that prayer for the, the dying. We realize uh, how many people are dying uh, each day. We hear of the great uh, catastrophes and terrorist attacks, and, and we, by all means, we should be praying for these special intentions of 120 dying in Paris. And, uh, but uh, statistically, with over six, seven billion people in the world, 153,000 people are dying each day. That comes down to uh, uh, 107 deaths per minute, 6,390 per hour. Uh, someone else did all the math. We're 56 million. <laughs> but, but, but just to realize, uh, it really is a beautiful prayer to remember. And just as we hope, if we end up in purgatory, that we'll be uh, benefiting from the prayers of others. And they say those souls in purgatory who never prayed or refused to pray for the souls in purgatory are not even as eligible to be helped by the prayers, even offered directly for them. So likewise, we can hope for greater help at the hour of our death when we are distinctly and daily, purposely praying for those who are dying. It's one of the most uh, urgent and ongoing uh, needs because so many. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so integral. It's a, a great, memory, a great uh, reminder. We are uh, living a Christian life is not living individually Christian life. It is being a, part, a member of the body of Christ. It's being part of the church. Uh, and we are, I mean, we pray for, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We're being brought into a communion with others, but with God. It has both dimensions going on there. And it's a beautiful reminder of that. And I think the whole discussion shows that death is so incredibly integral to the Christian life. We're baptized into death. We live it. We live mortification. We try to die to ourselves and we prepare ourselves all the time for that hour of our death so that we can have that life eternally with God in heaven. So, I'd like to, we'd like to close with the prayer to St. Philip Neri. And if we could stand and face the, uh, the painting of St. Philip. And then after that we'll finish with the hymn. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain, to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility, 
to this calamitousy. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindness of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires. That with thee, for our pilot and God, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Now the hymn to St. Philip Neri. Through the Spirit God has given us love is poured into each heart. Oh. Uh-huh. 
desserts over there, so please feel free to stay after and talk more about death. <laughs> <laughs>